And apologies for the extra week delay since last episode. Uh, some real life stuff got in the way, some super show prep, and plus I just I wanted to take some extra time to turn this issue over in my head because this is issue 11 of Green Lantern Mosaic, the John Stewart solo series from the early 90s. And if you remember several episodes back, the letters column had Jar uh, Jones promising that issue 11 would be where he puts some major foreshadowing and and clues to where this book is going and and in in typical mosaic manner he did not do it in a very blatant way although he kind of did i guess <laughs> uh this is this, this is a very mosaic-y issue i'll say um all right this entire issue is it's it's kind of a mix between two two entertainment tropes. It's the it's the waking dream and the near death experience kind of thing mushed together. I mean, a cut to the end first. John Stewart wakes up at the end of this because this, this entire thing happened while he was asleep, and it's, it's one of those dreams where you know he's fully aware that it's not right. It's a dream. And, and he looks normal, and he's dressed in his uniform, he's wearing his ring, but everybody sees him as, like, say, a ten-year-old boy. Because that's, that's kind of the, the time period his dream is flashing him back to. And everyone in the dream, you know, they fully rec- like, they can see him, but it doesn't necessarily act like they can't see him for what he really looks like, but they they almost choose to react to him like he's still that child in both appearance and fact. It's 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 pulled off very well, and John just kind of rolls with it too because he figured because if you f- realize you're in a dream, you may as well just go with it until it's over. You know, play it out. Um, and the other half of that is, is it also gives it it kind of gives the vibe of like a trip to the afterlife because. He encounters, he encounters people that he knows are dead, and he gets to interact with them after the fact. I mean, well, let's just down to the the meat of the issue. You know, the first two people he runs into are his father and mother. I think, you know, both of whom, you know, like, this is this is among his mother's last days, and he gets he gets lectured by his father all over again as this being like just pounded into his head that you have to work harder you have to to make yourself needed to those around you you have to get ahead in the world and then from there john just wanders through his life with this this urban suburban landscape that that frankly like there's there's a bunch of panels in here there's at least one or two pages of no dialogue where john is just walking through the streets of this normal looking place and the looks on his face, and he he looks so almost lost, even though this is 
where he grew up. These are the places that should be most familiar to him. But it's it's kind of interesting because he seems it's 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 almost like this normal setting is more alien to him now than the mosaic is. You know, John makes his way to his grandmother, who is still saying prayers for her dead husband, John's grandfather. You know, John doesn't really get why, because he cheated on her constantly, and that's how he died. One of his mistresses stabbed him in the heart with a steak knife, which, you know, we get to find out as he shows up again. Steak knife in his chest, gallons of blood gushing out of the wound, like, continuously. It just, it doesn't stop. It's just going and going the entire time he's talking. And the two of them wander together for a while, and all the while, everything John hears and sees comes back, you know, true to form, to architecture. Because his father always reinforced him that you have to find a better place. You have to find a better place for yourself. And John was always happy as a kid growing up in this neighborhood. So he figured, okay, dad must mean a better building. And he details all the different kinds of buildings that pass in their travels, and they, what he thinks they say about the human condition and fate and what effect architecture can have on society itself and on crime and on order. You know, he starts with some cheaply made mass-produced housing that all looks identical. He moves on to some, some more upscale kind of townhouses and then over to where his grandmother lives, this kind of slummish apartment building. And over to these skyscrapers they are just this cold, sterile public housing. And from there, from the most unnatural, colorless, lifeless, depressing place to live you can get, John hears a voice, a little voice, as he walks by what's, what's got to be the most earth-friendly home possible, a tree in a park. And he looks up, and the voice talking to him is Chip. That's right, we got Chip again. Chip, who is still dead from issue two, he's just chilling in this tree and he invites John up to come see his his better place. You know where where there's there's acorns and nuts everywhere and and you never get full. It satisfies your hunger, but it never gorges you. And here John expresses to Chip, you know, you know all he, he can't be happy to see Chip. He can't really question why Chip is here because. I mean, well, why would you start now questioning it? You, you, you just had your blood-gushing grandfather take you on a tour of the city. You're not going to question a squirrel eating some nuts in a tree. But John, he throws out there a lot of stuff that fans were thinking. You know, he's he expresses, like, this frustration and sorrow about Chip dying, especially since Chip should have been able to save himself. And if not Chip, then John should have been able to save him. And, you know, John even chalks it up to Sinestro's influence. He says, you know, Sinestro was in my head. He was, he kept me from saving you. And Chip just finds this supremely funny. Because he, he, he flat says here, you know, Sinestro wasn't in control. You know, he, Sinestro couldn't do anything that you didn't want him to do. And we'll get back to that a little bit later. Because Chip quickly changes the subject and as he shows John you know, reinforcing the heaven element again, he shows John the top of the tree from which you can see Earth and Oa and Chip's planet 
Oh god. Holven, H I, I don't know how to say this name. It's H apostrophe L V E N. I think it's supposed to be. Well, actually, I think it's probably a play on heaven. It's Helven, we'll say. And they're all just shining in the night sky, and it's kind of funny when when John says, "Wait, but if all those worlds are there, where are we?" And Chip just says, "Oh, don't you remember, John? We're in a tree." <laughs> Then out of nowhere, the old-timer shows up. This is the guardian, Appa Aliapsa, the one who's dead and whose memories are lodged inside John's brain that's been giving him some kinds of trouble. And the two of them go for a walk together. And and Chip can't go with them. He's, he just says, you know, I can't go any higher, John, but you can always come back here to talk, which, you know, the whole near-death experience thing again. But this staircase just starts to appear as they walk up it. And... At the top of the stairs is another large building. And John recognizes this architecture too as as Corrigarian. You know, that's that's yes, Sinestro's race, but it's, it's also the home world of his dearly departed wife Kat Matui. And and they come to a door, a big door, a big red doorknob that's hot to the touch, and Apaliapsa is urging John to open the door that he can't help John, but he has to open his own door, and John's trying to, and he's struggling, and it's burning him. And it's such an intense pain that it jars him awake. And that's where the issue ends. Now, from that brief description, you might be wondering, what the hell could that be foreshadowing about anything? There's some stuff in here. Okay, I I, I wanted to get that out of the way so I could just... Just look at some specific panels and pages here. Okay, and something to know about all of this is Jar Jones does a good job of giving you just enough information to make you think, okay, are they really saying this, or are they really saying this, or are they really saying this? Because it's, it's, it's weird. We, we still lack the proper amount of um, information to really put any of this in context, but you can kind of see where they're going in some spots. Like, on page 3, panels 3 and 6, when John's talking to his dad. You know, this is right after John says, you know, Dad, don't you notice anything different about me? You know, I'm a Green Lantern. I, I'm wearing a superhero uniform. I have this glowing ring. John's father says, uh, Plenty of black men are powerful among their own people, but helpless in the white man's world. The white man's power is the only one worth pursuing. You've got to make the white man need you, boy. And then panel six, after John criticizes him, you know, making speeches and all, his father continues, You'll hear my speeches, in air bunnies, until you learn the truth. The world is cruel. You learn how it works or it kills you. And I thought that was a nice kind of... It could almost be talking about the mosaic. Because that's kind of... That's something John's been finding in the last ten issues, is that you can't really... You know, you can't solve your problems by putting all of these people in jail every time they do something bad to each other because they're just going to get out and do it again. You know, they're already kind of in prison, so putting them in double prison isn't going to do. It's 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 not that great. I mean, it's it's like if you if someone has a life sentence already, adding a second life sentence on top of that is kind of a hollow threat. You know. So John's been tr- John and Rose and everybody else have been trying to figure out okay how do we 
how do we make this community work organically? Because if we don't, everybody's pretty much going to murder each other or die alone on this on this planet instead of go- being able to go home eventually. That's fine. This this is this and many other panels in here which we'll get to when John's father says the world is cruel, learn how it works or it kills you. Could also kind of be talking about the larger universe too. You know, because if you remember Mosaic is nothing if not a microcosm for for the universe. It's John too, but actually that's something I forgot to point out on the cover here of issue 11. It's not just titled Green Lantern Mosaic, it's I Mosaic, you know, with a comma. So think think I robot, you know. And I guess it's it's really it's subtly running the parallels. <laughs> you could say it's subtly hitting you in the face with the parallels between John and the Mosaic in this issue. Um, like, on the very next page, John's father confronts him again after after John visits with his mother briefly and says, this is John's dad, uh, get to school, boy, learn about the world, their world. Learn. Nobody can beat you then. Learn, and you'll get that better place. Which, it's funny, looking at this now, it's... John's father seems... It's, he's He's very much a guide character in this dream, in this vision, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, certainly less passive than the rest of the guides he encounters here, but he really wants to push him in the right direction here, and that right direction in the context of the series could very well be, you know, uh, how to say, because he keeps saying, he, the way he puts it, the way he puts it, he even corrects himself, he says, learn about the world, their world learn and you'll get that better place it's about this point that I wonder alright is he talking about the mosaic or could he be talking about the guardians because when it comes right down to it oh it is their world and if you remember from last episode there's something about the mosaic they're holding back from John um, I guess keep going in order here page 5 the last three panels we get a, an interesting bit of insight into John and and why he thinks the way he does about things, why he approaches things the way he does. He passes by the houses that he used to live in and the neighborhood he used to live in. And and then you get to this one style of house in the more wealthy neighborhood. Um, let's see. It's, it's, it's the kind of house that has lots of wood paneling and supports visible to the exterior. So, And John says to himself, I wondered why, if it was such a fancy house... They made the timbers show from the outside, and why the drapes were always drawn and the inside seemed so hidden. Then I thought, that's how I thought it should be. Learn how everything is kept up, but don't ask about the secrets at the heart of things. And then he just stands there pausing and looking at the house, which I think ties nicely into what his father just said a page earlier, how you know, John's been... He's been taking things fairly surface level for the for the series so far and he really has he's he's been very matter of fact with it he's been he's been looking for the answers to the questions that are the most in your face at the moment you know think back to the encounter with the tone men or or with the trendoids he asks the questions when it'll help put out the fires that are blazing immediately 
Now, you can tell he's kind of starting to wonder about this house the Guardians built, figuratively. Uh, page 10 and 11, when John's talking, like, this is right before he gets to Chip, John's talking to his grandfather. Um, he's looking at buildings, and his inner monologue is going, thinking about the architecture, and then he just starts monologuing out loud, which his grandpa thinks is weird, as, as if he has room to talk. <laughs> And he talks about, you know, he's again, he's he's talking about architecture and how it can influence society and crime rates and whatever. The evil, crannied mind of man would be redeemed by the purity of form. Criminals would vanish because they no longer had alleys or darkened hallways in which to hide and nurture their evil. Of course, all that happened is that the criminals grew bolder and accustomed to the light. And what's interesting about this, what they made this jump at me is that it would seem to suggest that John's been going about this whole mosaic thing wrong. Because again, he's been approaching a lot of this from the from the perspective of an architect. You know, his his instinct tells him that, okay, you build a better building, it improves people. Whereas, you know, people realistically are an X factor in all of this, in everything, because you never know how a single person's going to react to something let alone a community of people, let alone a hundred communities of people thrust together against their will. And, you know, maybe he should be thinking about this more in terms of the road and less in terms of of the structure of the mosaic or the structure of society. And can you structure society or or will you just kind of herd society and a direction it wouldn't otherwise go and cause people to become worse than they otherwise would have been. You know, how much control does John have over the individuals that he's watching over and how much control should he have? Now, let, all right, now we're back at Chip, page 15. Let's get back to this because Chip says, after he finishes laughing at John, he says, Sinestro couldn't do what you didn't want, John. Sinestro couldn't have been in your head if you hadn't invited him in. The Guardians knew that. They knew how you'd invited the old-timer in. So they put you against the battery and thought you would invite Sinestro in, too. Now that, that is actually kind of funny, because in the last episode of the Lantern Cast I was there to record for, the issue we read, the the last month's issue we read seemed to suggest to me that maybe the Guardians infected Hal Jordan with Parallax on purpose that first time, and now we have Chip basically telling John that that the Guardians infected John with Sinestro on purpose in a way that has so many parallels because Sinestro was this disembodied entity in the Central Battery at the time, <laughs> now, which is odd. Now, I'm hesitant to take this as fact because, again, this is in John's head, you know? Unless it's not. A couple pages later, when the old-timer shows up, John says, But you're still alive in my head. Does everybody who dies keep living on in my head? And the old-timer just doesn't say anything. And then says, walk with me, John, and they go to the staircase. So... So who knows, maybe this isn't a dream, maybe this is the afterlife, and John's, John's just interpreting it as a dream. <laughs> so so who knows, maybe everything that's being said to him in this issue is total bullshit, but maybe it's all real. God damn you, Jar Jones. <laughs> um, 
Now, the back and forth with Chip gets particularly interesting after that because they're standing at the very top of the tree on top of the branches and leaves, and Chip says to John, You've gone as high in the green as you can, John, but you've been leaving behind something red. And John, of course, thinks he means, you know, something red. You know, that's the creature that you saw on the road right before you died. That was was the bad thing in me. It was Sinestro, you know. And that's what we all assumed as we read it and went through the book. But Chip says, you know, no, that's not the only red. You still have some red in you. And John's freaking out because he's like, no, I expelled Sinestro. What are you talking about? Chip reaches his hand, all black lanternly, reaches his hand into John and pulls out his glowing red heart. He says, see, something red. <laughs> and it's actually when Apaliopsa shows up, he snatches John's heart away and continues to carry it with him. You know, the the something red being John's heart kind of tracks with what what some forum members pointed out, that the something red John could be missing is his wife, Katmatui, which, you know, you could... You could easily interpret that to mean, you know, you know, red equals heart equals love equals Katma. That makes perfect sense. And the whole thing about, about you know, you've gone as high in the green as you can, but you've been leaving behind something red. That could, I'm thinking that means, you know, John's been dealing with the loss of Katma by throwing himself into being Green Lantern and forgetting about his heart, you know, not letting himself really love, which... Again, makes me want to get a more in-depth look at his relationship with Rose, because I, I mean, I'm at this point I'm thinking it's just a comfort thing because of their situation and and what John's lost. It is definitely worth mentioning that he's basically being a Green Lantern twenty-four-seven now. I think we've only seen him out of costume once in this series so far, and the rest of the time, you know. I mean, everybody knows his name is John Stewart, but they still call him Green Lantern. He still wears the uniform of a Green Lantern all the time. That's all he does. Like he might think like an architect, but being a Green Lantern and being the guardian of the mosaic, huh? That's all he does. Interesting. Guardian of the mosaic. And it's interesting. Speaking of Chip, Chip, you know those those. Nuts they'll nourish you but never gorge you. He you know, he offers John one and and Chips are Chips is eating them and eating them and John tries to crack one open but he can't. He can't do it with his hands, he he tries crushing them against each other, it doesn't work. Uh he even tries using his ring, but the constructs just break apart. And Chip says, Oh, that's too bad, John. I wish I could help you, but you have to open them yourself. And he says, They fill up your soul which kind of flashes back to earlier in the issue when he's wandering around right before finding his grandmother's building and he passes a sign in a window of a shop that just says soul food and he focuses on that for a few minutes. It kind of it helps lend to the spiritual side of this whole issue and this whole experience, but it also it kind of highlights a side of John Stewart that I won't say doesn't exist, but doesn't come into play very much at all. You know, the whole the whole idea that there could be a spiritual side to all of this that he's just not capable of really seeing because, you know, he's an architect. He thinks in terms of science and structure and math, you know. Like, I fully expect him to write out this entire experience right here as just 100% dream and nothing else. (laughs) And it's funny, the dream actually ends with him still kind of seeing Chip 
and Chip saying, uh, you know, this, John wakes up, he's in bed, he looks up, there's a green image of Chip saying, your head has been touched, John, you must keep walking, but you have to open your own door, that's just the nut you have to crack. Maybe in keeping with the whole idea that, you know, Katma's his heart, his soul, open the door to get to her, to get to something red, to get to your heart. But you can't do that as you are right now. You have to... I don't know. You have to change. You have to... <laughs> he found this out in a tree. Maybe he has to see the forest for the trees. <laughs> to keep going with the spiritual references, there's this line, this theme that keeps running through this issue. Where... Let's see. It first shows up. When John's talking to his mother about her impending death of cancer... Um, his mother says to him there's nothing we can do baby God puts his hand on our head and we walk with him and you get your books and go off to school and that comes back again on page 8 when John's asking his grandmother about his grandfather's death and she says to him God put his hands on the black man's head little Johnny and we'll walk with him and that's when the grandfather shows up all blood spewy and you know, after they argue back and forth for a few minutes, he escorts John out so they can go on their walk. He reaches up, presumably to put his arm around John's shoulders, but because of the height difference, it ends up with one hand behind John's head. So you've got this old man leading John by the back of the head, hand on head, just like they... And they're heavily implying that this is... This could be God right here. Which, Jesus, if <laughs> if his... If his if his grandfather who was killed for adultery is is supposed to represent God, I, I'm I'll I'll let you guys run with that and the implications there, okay? Um, but then it it again it links back to what we said already about Chip's message to John as the dream was ending about you know your head has been touched and the whole the whole basically you've been given guidance. And where, wherever you want that to be from, it was given, and it's up to you to do what you can with it, make of it what you will. And I'm also wondering now, if this specter of Chip at the end was part of the dream, or... Because, I mean, it's all green, so is it a construct? And did John make it? Because he's wearing his ring. Or could it have been sent by the Guardians, maybe? Could this entire thing have been sent into his mind by the Guardians. Because that's something big that's been reinforced in this series so far, is that there's a good degree of mental warfare that can go on when when you're using the green energy and, and power rings. Alright, now, let's talk about the most important page in this entire thing. This is page 19. This is as Apaliapsa and John are starting to go up that staircase and they're leaving ship behind. The old-timer references a specific song that he gets John to sing. I'll build a stairway to paradise with a new step every day. And the old-timer explains that this was a song written by two Jewish men bringing the moaning tones of the ancient Middle East and the Russian farms to the crowded cities of America, trying to enter the musical sense of a people brought from Africa to America. And this song became popular among all Americans. Do you see, John? 
it's very important that you see John. It's very important. Which is a nice, nice kind of beating you over the head <laughs> clue that you should be paying attention to this. Um, and John even says to him, you know, that's kind of cryptic. You know, you're going far beyond me now, old timer. We're too high. I'm confused. And this is the way he tells John as he approaches the door that the the Corrigarian door with the big red doorknob that he can't seem to open. And the old timer even says to him. Don't fear the red, John. You can't just hold the green. And and well, let's look at that again. Cause this, I've been thinking about this a lot. He's basically given John a musical example, which it's funny how that keeps coming back. The tone men would be proud. Um, someone of one particular culture bringing representatives of other cultures to a new place, to a melting pot in an attempt to affect some people, but at the end of the day, affecting everyone. I cannot help but pay close attention to the fact that this is coming from a guardian. You know, it's way I tried for a long time to try and figure out, okay, in this in these lyrics, in this example, does does the Jewish men represent John and does does the the moaning tones of the ancient Middle East and Russian farms. Is, is that John's baggage that he brings with him to the mosaic? Is that the mosaic populations themselves? Is America the mosaic? Is, is, I, and I don't think there's exactly, I don't, I don't think it lines up one-to-one -one like that. You know, it's, I think, I think the underlying theme we're supposed to take away from it is that it's the idea of trying to help this one group of people, but ending up helping everybody. That that's and that's essentially what John is doing here with the mosaic. You know, one way or another, whatever he does here, however this ends, is going to have an effect outside of this sphere. You know, it's maybe it'll go like he he was trying to sell the guardians on last time, where all the mosaic residents will take their experiences and knowledge home with them and. They'll educate their worlds to, to be more welcome and tolerant and expecting of each other when the time comes to meet officially. Or maybe it's something bigger, because again, it's coming from a, a guardian. And he stresses how important it is. And not only does he do that, he, he stresses how important this is as they climb a staircase into the sky as they're surrounded by stars. It's, it, it really gives a feel that he's talking universal implications here, and and this page on top, this this entire issue really hits home to me that I don't think the mosaic experiment is about the mosaic anymore. I don't think it ever was. I think this is about John. I think the whole mosaic city, everything, is just a vehicle to see if John can do something or is ready for something cuz cuz i mean the <clears throat> we already know the guardians keep making excuses for why that city is there and why they won't send it home and that they're holding something back from him and how hell the only one on oa the only the only lantern related character on oa that has any direct interaction with the mosaic itself is John Stewart. So, all right, what if this is an experiment? But it's not about what they've been saying. It's about what if it's an experiment on John? 
maybe that's why they're not giving anybody the easy way out. Because right here, I mean, he's always been a character who, who is kind of defined by death and loss, and now here he is spending an issue taking a walk around with all of the people who have died, all the people who have lost and been lost to him, and the one and only really truly significant personal loss that he was not able to interact with was his wife, which that has got to, that is significant, that is the whole, in keeping with the whole, like, you can't, you can't leave your heart behind, and you have to, the whole thing with the soul nuts and the soul food, and how, huh, who knows, maybe, maybe, maybe what Chip meant when he said he's gone as high as he can in the green, means he's gone as far as he can as, as a green lantern, and now he has to focus on just being him, I don't know, weird. The letters page this time around is filled with people reacting to the the news of Mosaic's cancellation, which, you know, they still don't say how long it has. There's reference in here that it has longer than than a year to finish. Um, it's, it's fine. It's, it's everybody kind of playing, playing armchair quarterback here, trying to figure out, you know, you know this is why it's can being canceled. It's being canceled because of sales. It must be, and being canceled because it's not marketable because only only indie and vertigo readers would want to read this but none of them want to read a superhero book and that's what's keeping them away and why it's getting canceled and this and that and the other thing and you know they, they really don't get much in the way of an answer as to well why is this book actually going away um and i actually find myself quickly distracted by the fact that the one person <laughs> makes a suggestion that, uh, what's he say? He says, I think, in view of John's environment and his insanity, the perfect companion for him would be a cat. Not a comical, stereotypical kitty like Kara's, or even some weird intergalactic cat-like species in one of the own cities. Just a cat. He could find a stray one on Earth in a city and take it in. I am now committed to the idea of Rage Kitty being in the mosaic. Just hanging out, just chilling out with John. Oh my god. <laughs> the possibilities. <laughs> um Um that's actually most of these letters are about. You know, there's some additional feedback from issue six which kinda retreads old territory and there's there's uh some Reaction to issue seven with people intrigued by the concept of the tone men, though. Although there's one person who doesn't really he he doesn't really think Mosaic is living up to its potential, and he uses the tone men issue as an example of that, where where you're trying to tell a story that hinges on sound in an all visual medium, and how you know it's. It's interesting ideas and and how, but for him it just didn't really work out. Whereas if they made some kind of like a short film or TV adaptation of the issue, it would have really been able to shine. Which you know I could see that, but at at the same time, I feel like if if you're able to to make your way through a comic book story in general anyway, you shouldn't really have that much trouble with this kind of thing, you know? And how you can visually convey all of the intensity and lack thereof of the music and of the sound rather easily. 
and you know the the heavy use of lyrical quotes help kind of guide your imagination through it so you can fill in your own gaps your own sound if you really want to if you just kind of go with the story um there was one interesting note here how we're we found out like again i didn't really talk about the art but uh Mitch Bird drew this issue, issue 11, that we read tonight. And, you know, he's not that bad. He seems similar-ish to Cully Hamner in a lot of sensibilities, although there are plenty of panels where John just goes so off-model. Like, his face kind of looks like somebody hit it with a bat a few more times than it looks when Cully draws it. But, um, it's not bad, not bad. Actually, I think Mitch Bird goes on to replace Cully Hamner later in the series after he finishes up with it, but um, we get told here by what's-his-name who answers the letters instead of Jari Jones now. Because <laughs> a letter writer had pointed out that you know issue six had to fill an artist, as we discussed on the show. Uh, he says here, The issue in which a fill an artist has been employed, number six, and the one you're holding in your sweaty little hands... Gerard felt it best to set the stories away from the mosaic. Cully Hamner's vision of the world and its inhabitants is so compelling and so indelible that it seemed best to keep that look consistent. Of course, since John will likely appear in every issue, Phil and Artists notwithstanding, he will be treated to different interpretations of him. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. Like, this is the second time we get a mosaic issue where the mosaic itself is not featured at all. And it's and for both of these instances they've had fill an artist and I'd never thought that okay, they did that for an actual specific purpose. I thought they were having scheduling problems or something, but that's interesting. I like that. It's a shame that's going to kind of fall apart later considering that we know Cully Hamner you know, he he does, I think, the next few issues, and then every other issue, and then ends on number 15, and I want to say Mitch Bird finishes it out, but, you know, what, whichever. Um, although, who knows, maybe by then something, you know, the shit could hit the fan, and the change in visual style could be, could be appropriate. God, you know, I've been looking forward to this issue for a while now, ever since I read that on the air in the letters page talking about the the impending issue 11. And it's weird, you know, I almost... Like, this was very much an issue that existed to further the plot of the series, which they needed because it's been almost a full year of it and they really hadn't done anything like that yet. But, I mean, well, I guess you could argue that the uh, tour bus around the planet was kind of that but i don't know i'd call that more of a furthering or, or a reaffirmation of concept than anything else but yeah some good stuff to think about some good stuff to think about i absolutely guarantee you all of my thoughts did not end up in this episode because as you sit down and talk about this you know i took notes as i was reading it and throughout the weeks as i've been thinking about it but and, and hell some of the stuff that there, there are stuff that came off the top of my head as I sat down to record this that never occurred to me before. So, please weigh in on this issue. I want to hear what people have to say, what you think, what you could infer from the contents of this issue. Keeping in mind that I've not read past this issue yet. So, don't go saying, oh, well, in issue 18, when this happens and this happens, and John's father is really a scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz. 
I don't want to hear that just yet. We'll we'll come we'll cross that bridge together when we get to it. Um. So anyway, I'm just I'm just gonna cut this off now because this is I have been rambling. This is such a long episode. We're just gonna go. So you can contact me at dan at lanterncast.com. You can email the show in general at lanterncast at gmail.com or call our voicemail line 206-202-1159. Go to lanterncast.com to get the episodes and also link to our forums at thecomicforums.com. We're on Twitter. I don't know how that works, but I guess twitter.com slash lanterncast maybe i will go with that um we're on facebook uh but go go to the forums it's awesome there just go there do it it's a great place to go to talk to fans of the things that you love hell, hell even if you don't want to go to our forums there's like 80 different forums right there in a big list you're going to find something that you want to talk about and amazing people that you'll love talking to and one final note before we go, I want to congratulate Tom Caters of the Tom vs. Aquaman podcast for winning the 2010 Noisy Award from comicbooknoise.com in the, the, what was it, the best single host new comic book podcast category. He does a good show, Tom does. I've, listened, I've been listening to it for a couple years now. Um, you can go to his site, which is Tom versus DCU dot dot com or just search Tom versus Aquaman on iTunes. And actually, if I can make a recommendation, go back to Tom versus the Flash. It's it's all in the same feed. At that first twenty, thirty episodes where it's he's still talking about the initial Silver Age Barry Allen stories where everything is all crazy and goofy and funny. Like those are so much fun. Like, whether you have access to those comics or not, or have ever read those comics or not, is just, it's an experience. You know, I keep those on my iPod, because, you know, the, DC has started doing the Chronicles of Green Lantern, and they've also done the Flash Chronicles, and I plan on getting the first two volumes of those, so I can, you know, read an issue, and then listen to an episode, and read an issue, then that kind of thing. It's a really good show. Aquaman, Aquaman's picking up steam, it's... It's a little harder to start out with Aquaman because there's so little there from his starting point because he's starting with backup stories only. But, you know, it's it's starting to become a lot of fun. And, Tom, you do good stuff. You deserve it. So with that, good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>